Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to this um, fourth uh, conversation uh, to welcome the Women's Library um, to LSC. Um, I'm delighted to be able to welcome to the conversation this evening, which has the subject of money and inequality, two very distinguished speakers who are going to converse about this issue. The first person who's going to speak is Ruth Lester, um, who is Emeritus Professor of Social Policy at Loughborough University and for a long time has been deeply engaged with issues of gender and poverty. She's a member of the Joint Committee on Human Rights and currently on the Management Committee of the Pressure Group Compass. She's also served on the Commission on Social Justice, at the Commission on Poverty, Participation and Power, the Fabian Commission on Life Chances and Child Poverty, and the National Equality Panel. Our second speaker is Diane Elson, who is Emeritus <coughs> Professor from the University of Essex. And she's a research associate of the Centre for Global Women's Leadership and is presently the chair of the UK Women's Budget Group, which has worked and has had a very significant public presence in recent years in campaigning on the issue of women and, gen uh, women and economic inequality. Both these people have written widely and played an enormous part in our thinking about the ways in which financial and economic inequality is gendered. So, may I ask you to welcome, first of all, Ruth Lister. Thank you. Okay, th thanks very much, Mary. Um, I thought the best way into a conversation might be to talk uh, a bit from a personal perspective about how I became involved uh, in issues around women's poverty and also uh, economic independence. And, and I think it would be really interesting to see how far it resonates with those of you of a different generation. And I think, I gather you're, the first of these conversations was around feminism then and now. Uh, so my starting point, in a sense, is feminism then, uh, then being the 1970s. Uh, and I became involved in the women's movement in the sort of early 1970s through uh, something called the Campaign for Legal and Financial Independence, which was the fifth demand of the women's liberation movement. Uh, and that involvement was, in a sense, quite serendipitous. That I was invited to go and speak at a meeting uh, about a pamphlet I'd written for the Child Poverty Action Group, who I worked for for the first half of my working life. Uh, it was a pamphlet about the uh, cohabitation rule in Social Security applied when um, people were deemed to be living together as husband and wife uh, and supposedly cheating the system. Um, and they then asked me to join uh, the campaign and got, we got heavily involved in um, writing and producing pamphlets, leaflets, campaigning around the whole issue of women's financial and legal independence and raising awareness of how the state reinforced married women's financial and legal dependence on their partners through, for example, tax laws that denied women independent status and social security laws that provided discriminatory benefits. Uh, and it was a campaign that very much, for me, forged the personal 
and the political because it helped crystallise how I never wanted to be economically dependent on a man, particularly having seen my own mother being totally economically dependent on my father. Uh, And given the state of the law at the time, uh, or the time that marriage might have been on the cards for me, uh, I decided it wasn't for me. I did not want to put myself into that uh, what seemed like a legal noose and create myself as a dependent in the eyes of the state. Um, At the same time, my work for Child Poverty Action Group, CPAG, was making me more aware of the extent to which women bear the burden of poverty. So both these issues, women's economic dependence and women's poverty, were ones I then pursued when I moved into the academic world, uh, both from the perspective of the feminist theorisation of citizenship uh, and empirical and conceptual work on poverty, uh, and and was once more able to take them up in a more campaigning Uh, perspective through the work of the Women's Budget Group uh, that Diane's involved in as well uh, much more actively than I am actually Um, uh, particularly a couple couple of reports we produced specifically on women and poverty so I thought I'd just say a bit about economic dependency a bit about women's poverty and then a little bit of the work uh, I'm doing in the House of Lords where I'm kind of, as I said, has brought me back in more into the political arena out of uh, the academic arena. So I saw economic de- dependency as the key issue for women's citizenship, ignored by mainstream theorization, which saw independence as a prerequisite for citizenship, but focused only on independence in the public sphere and ignored everything that happened in the private domestic sphere. And although complete economic dependency is less common today than it was in the 1970s, women's earnings, particularly when they're only part-time, are still often insufficient to guarantee genuine economic independence. And I think my own fear of economic independence was tied up very much with my understanding that it spells lack of power in a relationship Uh, research indicates how this unequal power relationship is experienced by many women as a lack of control over resources, a lack of rights and a sense of obligation and deference Uh, and this is one reason why it's so important that women are able to receive benefits in their own right that they can then feel as their contribution to uh, household uh, resources and in its most extreme form economic dependence can be exploited through a form of economic violence uh, in which the woman's freedom is fundamentally curtailed. And a small Oxfam study of poverty among uh, black and minority ethnic ethnic women, uh, mothers, found some instances of this, although, of course, it is not confined to um, black and minority ethnic families. Uh, And indeed, in the past, black feminists were very critical of some of us white feminists for going on so much about economic dependence because that wasn't the key issue for them. Many black women were, especially African-Caribbean women, were economically independent um, but not necessarily earning very much from a a discriminatory labour market. Um, 
more generally, where economic dependence deprives women of voice and closes off uh, their exit, they can all too easily become trapped in abusive and violent relationships. And as Jan Paul put it, Jan Paul, as I'm sure many of you know, was one of the first to explore the question of what happens to money within families. Uh, she put it so very graphically, a husband's exercise of the power of the purse and the force of the fist can coincide. So economic dependence is also a key factor, I think, in understanding women's poverty. And I think there's growing recognition exemplified in Sylvia Chant's um, International Handbook of Gender and Poverty that the notion of the feminization of poverty that became quite sort of fashionable for a while um, it, it was something of a red herring in part because it encouraged a simple head count in which only women in female-headed households were identifiable as poor. And although the poverty statistics purport to count individuals, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, in fact, they do so on the basis of household income and then make the heroic assumption that that income is somehow shared fairly uh, within the households. And Jan Pahls has mentioned pioneering study of what actually happens to money within households helped to expose the hidden poverty that can occur when income is not shared fairly. And it inspired further research, uh, including a study that I carried out with Jackie Good and Claire Callender, which focused specifically on low-income households and how they use Social Security benefits. And that demonstrated that it still mattered to whom benefits and tax credits were paid, although we, we, we published the report just around the time when New Labour was coming to power, and they were suggesting at that point that they would pay the new tax credits through the wage packet, saying that, oh, well, this it's all a bit old-fashioned, it doesn't matter anymore to whom money is paid. And we were able to demonstrate it does still matter. Um, and, and her research also contributed to a growing body, growing body of research, illuminating how the experience of poverty is gendered. Um, historically and today, there's a wealth of evidence showing how mothers often go without so as to protect other family members, especially children, from the worst effects of poverty. And it's one facet of what we described in our Women's Budget Report on the links between women's and children's poverty as women acting as the shock absorbers of poverty, as they manage poverty and debt as part of their general responsibility for money management in low-income households. Sometimes they end up being saddled with their partner's debts, what um, Tess Ridge dubbed as sexually transmitted debts. Um, and the work involved in managing poverty means that women are particularly susceptible to time poverty, and I know work's been done on that um, here in the LSE, as well as income poverty. And all this can have a very damaging impact on mental and physical health. And implicit in what I've been saying is an emphasis on how poverty is experienced by individuals rather than by some grouping such as a household. But I, there's a kind of slight tension here because this could be seen as unduly individualistic and in tension with a more relational approach which emphasises the interdependencies involved in relationships of care. But I think it's possible to focus on the individual experience of poverty while still understanding it 
in a relational context. And I would argue that genuine interdependence isn't really compatible with an unequal economic power relationship. And a more individualized focus also encourages a more dynamic perspective, which goes beyond the here and now to consider the future life course. So irrespective of the material living standards that a woman might enjoy at any one time, she is vulnerable to poverty in the future if she lacks control over resources and the independent means to support herself. Some have therefore argued that poverty should be measured with reference to the income that an individual actually has control over, ignoring actual living standards, although others argue that that's going a bit too far, and of course it's not going to happen. Um, A gendered approach also requires us to think about the gendered causes of poverty and how they're to be found in in the interrelationship between a family uh, labor market, a labor market which still disadvantages women and a welfare state which still does not guarantee economic independence or freedom from poverty. And there's a, f- a forthcoming literature review carried out by Fran Bennett and um, Mary Daly for the jo- Joseph Rowntree Foundation throws interesting light on this in relation to men's as well as women's poverty. And one key issue which links my work on women's citizenship uh, and poverty is the gendered division of labour and the undervaluing of care work. Uh, I wonder how many more years we're going to have to talk about the undervaluing of care work, but still here we are still talking about the undervaluing of care work. Um, And one of the policy dilemmas in this area is how to value care, care work, without reinforcing the gender division of labour in heterosexual couples? And the answer, I believe, has to lie at least in part in in policies which are designed to encourage and enable men to do more domestic care work and also housework. I don't think we, we can't look at it without looking at the role of men. And that brings me to my policy work in the Lords. Uh, And to that end, I've been pushing for a reserved month of parental leave for fathers based on the Nordic policy of a daddy month or more than one uh, month in in some cases as part of the government's reform of shared parental leave. Um, And I moved an amendment to the Children and Families Bill uh, supported by the Fatherhood Institute and Working Families which was, of course, unsuccessful. But we did get a commitment from the minister on the record that if at some future date they used their regulation-making powers to extend paternity leave to make it longer, that wouldn't have to be immediately after the birth, as they've said it would have up until now. They've sort of said, oh, it would be very difficult to make it later during the parental leave period. But now they said, yes, it could be later, So actually it is possible to envisage a a month of, you know, if it happened, it's it's possible within the regulation-making powers to have a month of paternity leave kind of later, which would in effect be a daddy month. Um, The most important legislation I've been involved in, though, in relation to our discussion today uh, is, of course, the Welfare Reform Bill, And for me, it was absolutely crucial to look at the bill through a gendered lens. And I was very much helped by that in the briefings of the Women's Budget Group, and in particular 
those written by my friend Fran Bennett, uh, with whom I worked at CPAG. And among the key issues that we raised were the impact of universal credit on second earners, whose work incentives will be reduced, and the payment of the credit in a single monthly sum, uh, so that there is no guarantee that mothers will get control of any of the money, uh, and they will have to cope with budgeting on a monthly rather than a fortnightly uh, basis, which is causing considerable anxiety, as you can imagine. Overall, the policy making around universal credit exemplifies what has been termed the unitary household uh, perspective, in which, to quote Fran, there is one undifferentiated interest and identity rather than seeing households as made up of different individuals with both common and diverging interests. So it's kind of depressing that it's still the case but at least the work of groups like the Women's Budget Group and Fawcett Society does help to ensure that policy debates in this area are not completely gender ignorant and I'll leave it to that for now. Thank you very much, thank you. I'm going to take up quite a few of the issues that Ruth has raised, um, but I want to do this in an international perspective because uh, my work as an academic and an activist, as well as being in this country, uh, has also been in uh, gender and international development and working with networks of women's organizations around the world. And like Ruth, I, I got into this as a feminist in the late 60s, early 70s, as a student, I had friends uh, from India, from South Africa, from Mexico, uh, and then I worked at the Institute for Development Studies in the University of Sussex in the 70s, uh, where we set up the first workshop on what we call the subordination of women in the course of development, uh, and had a, a, a conference which brought together women from around the world who were working in their different contexts on issues of gender equality, women's rights, poverty. And uh, uh, I also then continued um, working on, on these issues in the University of Manchester, and then I went uh, to work for what was then UNIFAM in New York, the United Nations Development Fund for Women, to help them put together a report uh, published in 2000 on, on what was happening to women around the world, and had there been any progress in the wake of these different international initiatives, starting with, uh, in 1975, with the first uh, UN World Conference on Women. And um, I've, since I returned to academic life, I've continued to work with uh, UNIFAM and its successor organization, UN Women, and I also now sit on a UN committee called the Committee for Development Policy, uh, where one working with a few other women on the committee to try and make sure this isn't totally gender blind in the way that it's looking at uh, development policy, particularly economic policy. So I, I, I'm going to pick up on several of the issues that Ruth has raised um, in this international context, um, but I want to start off with money. Because one of the things that happened that's been happening in, over the last 50 years around the world is that societies which were not thoroughly monetized 50 years ago now are thoroughly monetized. And if you live in a monetized world, 
where money becomes critical to being able to enjoy a, some kind of adequate, decent standard of living, then if you don't have enough money, you're at a disadvantage. And if you don't have any money of your own, you're at a tremendous disadvantage in the, in the way that uh, Ruth talked about. Well, we, we know, I think, that millions of women around the world have no money of their own. I can't tell you the exact number of millions because the way that we collect data all around the world um, through household surveys, uh, very often these household surveys don't collect data on income. They only collect data on expenditure. Uh, or if they collect uh, data on income, they don't publish it in a way that you can tell uh, different members of the family uh, what kinds of income do they have. So I can't tell you X is the number of the millions of women around the world who have no money of their own. But a, a fairly reasonable proxy indicator is the percentage of the population in employment, the percentage of men in employment, the percentage of women in employment. If you're in employment, at least you've got a chance of having some money of your own. I say a chance because I'm going to qualify that in a moment, but you do have a chance. And um, in 2010, the global ratio of the uh, 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 women's employment to women, a female population ratio to men's employment to men's population ratio was 0.7. That means for every 10 men who were in employment, there were seven women in employment. And so three women for every 10 men, a global perspective, who weren't in employment and didn't therefore have the chance to um, get any money of their own from earnings. Of course, they could possibly have had other sources, like they might have inherited something, or uh, they might have had some welfare benefit, some social security transfer, although uh, they're far less um, uh, extensively developed uh, social security transfers uh, in, uh, in Africa, Asia, and Latin America than they are in Europe, although they have developed quite a lot over the last 15 years, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. So 10 men in employment, uh, 7 women in employment. But even those seven women who were in employment, we can't be sure that that generated some money of their own. Because a lot of those women were uh, working in uh, family farms and family businesses, not getting any direct income themselves. Uh, the direct income from whatever the farm or the business was selling uh, going to the senior men in the household and the women and the junior men in the household not being directly paid for what they did. And so what benefits they get out of this all depends on what Ruth has talked about, this, the complexities and the dynamics of distribution within households. And you're definitely at a disadvantage if you're not the one who goes to market to sell the carpets and get the money, even though you've been making the carpets. Or you're not the one who goes to market and sells the crops, even you, though you've been doing a lot of the weeding and harvesting on the crops. So still, um, lots of women in this unpaid family labor, so although they're in employment, they don't get money of their own uh, from this. 
Nevertheless, over time, over the last 40 or so years, there has been a rise in the numbers of women in employment and a fall in those who are not in employment and also a fall in those, uh, the numbers who are in this category of the, the unpaid family labour. So over time, we've seen more women uh, having the chance to earn some money of their own. And so, yes, that's in some ways a cause for celebration. Um, but the problem then is the amount of money that many women are getting for their work is so low. So women are relatively concentrated all over the world in uh, low-paid activities, both low-paid waged work and also uh, low-paid self-employment. So in many economies in, in Africa, Asia, um, Latin America, large numbers of women and more women than men concentrated in what uh, is often called the informal economy, in informal work. A lot of it uh, self-employed and some of it outwork, uh, doing uh, work at home on contracts, subcontract to factories, which means, yes, they're employed, yes, they are getting some money, but not very much for long hours of work. And so this phenomenon of the working poor uh, is very important to recognize. There are lots of uh, women who are working, who are getting some money, but they're still poor. Uh, men the same, but I think that women are disproportionately concentrated in, in this issue of the working poor. And I think this is the issue of the people who have worked but are in poverty has also become very important here, and Ruth might want to uh, comment uh, on that. Um, uh, so that kind of restructuring of uh, labour markets in the UK, particularly since the financial crisis, so that uh, the labour market here is actually becoming more like labour markets in developing countries in terms of more people in very low-paid self-employment uh, and in zero-hours contracts. I hope the LSE doesn't use zero-hours contracts. Uh, and uh, these kinds of uh, um, jobs where uh, you don't have very much in the way of rights, you don't have very much in the way of social security, and you work hard and you, you don't really earn enough uh, to lift you out of poverty. So I think this issue of the working poor uh, and the way that women are disproportionately among the working poor is also something we need to look at. Well, I, I've, I've gone from money to mentioning poverty and uh, the working poor. So let me say a little bit more about poverty now. Um, how many women around the world are poor? There's no easy answer to that question. Uh, Ruth has already mentioned some of the complexities of how do we uh, measure poverty. There's uh, the issue of um, what kind of poverty line do we draw uh, in Europe, it's um, a relative poverty line where we link poverty to the median um, uh, earnings. But uh, in the international context, it is often a, an absolute poverty line that's used. Uh, people living on less than $2 a day. Um, uh, and then how do you decide that $2 a day is the poverty level rather than $3 a day? So what do you think that people have got to be able to buy in order not to be poor? So um, complexities about how we 
measure poverty, how we construct poverty lines? Do we look at income or expenditure? So far I've talked a lot about income, but when you start to look at how poverty measures in uh, many developing countries are constructed, you find the household surveys uh, don't uh, present you with any data about income. It's about expenditure. What has the household spent money on? And um, the, the inferences we draw depend, as, as Ruth has mentioned, on um, assumptions about how resources are shared within households. Um, as I keep telling the economists at the World Bank, and I've told them at the Treasury here in the past, it's not a safe assumption to assume that all resources within a household are equally pooled and shared. We know enough, uh, we have enough studies for lots of countries to show that's not the case. On the other hand, as Ruth said, nor is it the case uh, that in most households there's absolutely no sharing whatsoever. So we have a kind of complex arrangements um, of uh, some pooling and sharing, uh, but also some keeping back of individual income. And we've also got the point that uh, Sylvia Chant, um, who's brought out in, in, in some of her recent work, that as more women have uh, been earning some money of their own, there's been uh, some evidence uh, of men withdrawing some of the uh, income they were pooling and sharing with other members of the household. So that challenge, you, you've got a job now, or you're earning some money of your own, or you've had some microcredit and you set up your own business, so I don't need to contribute as much to the family pot as I was contributing. You've got some money, you pay for it. Uh, so I think that's a new challenge that's uh, arisen as more women um, have moved uh, into the labour market, have started some, getting some money of their own. How does that interact with previous norms about who pays for what in the household and how are things uh, shared? Um, what, what we can do with the kind of data that we've got at the moment is to establish whether women are more likely than men to live in households below the poverty line. Let's go beyond just looking at female-headed households. So we'll say, okay, whatever measure, wherever we're measuring it, we're coming up with some number of, of how many households are below the poverty line. That if we look at those households, at proportions of uh, men and proportions of women in those households, um, are women more likely than men to be living in households below the poverty line? And um, uh, UN Women has done some work on that um, for sub-Saharan Africa. And actually they found that there's, there's on, on, in general, yes, in sub-Saharan Africa, women are more likely than men to be living in households below the poverty line. But there's quite a lot of variation between countries. That's not true of every country. And in some countries, there's a lot more women uh, uh, than men in households below the poverty line. And in others, there's not many. So, it, so I hope nobody still quotes this spurious figure that 70% of the world's poorer are women because there really isn't any foundation uh, for that soundbite. Uh, and what we have to do is uh, look uh, in, in more detail uh, at um, some of the complexities of these issues. Um, I also wanted to say that in, in thinking about, in, in, in work on development, there's also been a lot of emphasis on 
looking beyond income and expenditure, uh, looking at other kinds of deprivations, um, looking at deprivations in education, in health, uh, in uh, water and sanitation, and in voice, um, what's become known as the capabilities approach, looking to see uh, what can women do and be and how does that compare with what men can do and be. And so it looks at a, a, a range of kinds of deprivations of which money is a key one, but it's not the only one. And when you look at those range of deprivations, then you look at things like health, education, water and sanitation, then you see it's also public money that needs to be brought into the picture, as Ruth has already mentioned in the kind of examples that uh, she's given. Uh, it's the way that governments uh, raise money and spend money which is also important for thinking about women's financial independence and their poverty. <coughs> and uh, Ruth mentioned the Women's Budget Group here in the UK. There is an international network now of initiatives around the world where women in different countries are looking at how their governments are raising and, and money and spending money and saying, is it doing anything to promote gender equality? Is it recognising women's uh, uh, requirement for financial independence? Is it doing anything to uh, address um, uh, women's poverty? And perhaps I'll just end by saying something about the ways that, as well as monitoring, uh, women are challenging around the world the kinds of um, uh, lack of financial independence and the kind of poverty that many women are, um, are in. Um, I'll mention specifically a number of international arenas where this is taking place. Um, in New York, there's about to begin the annual meeting of the UN Commission on the Status of Women, where governments from around the world will come and negotiate a, a, a document, uh, but also lots of women's organizations around the world will, will gather in New York and will be sharing uh, ideas uh, about the kind of activities they've been involved in uh, in fighting for women's rights and women's poverty and women's financial independence is certainly going to be uh, on agendas there. Um, and women's organisations are also engaging with a UN process about what kind of um, global vision for development is going to come after 2015 to replace uh, something called the Millennium Development Goals, which has been Kind of the, the kind of guiding uh, framework for a lot of development cooperation and development activities for the last 15 years. What's going to replace that? And is it going to have uh, gender equality centrally in there? Uh, is, is the discussions uh, about poverty and how to address it going to recognize uh, the way uh, that men and women um, experience poverty differently? Uh, and um, this is the, the, the arenas in which women are, are, are tackling this. Um, uh, part of it is in the, the arena of social security. And Ruth gave examples from the UK. Been a, there has been a growth over the last 15 years of uh, income transfer schemes to low-income women uh, in, uh, in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. Um, but as well as the cash you have to meet conditions. So this is money that is paid directly to low-income women 
but to, to get it, you have to take your children to the clinic and to be immunized and to make sure they go to school, which may not seem such a big deal, but if you're in a village without um, a clinic and a school on the doorstep and a lack of transport and a lack of water and sanitation, actually is quite difficult. So a lot of debates, actually, about is it a good idea to pay these transfers to women or does that reinforce a kind of maternal responsibility for the health and education of children that men ought to be sharing? Um, and another arena in which women um, are, 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 are very active around the world is the issue of the labour market, like, like they are here, the issues about uh, how can women get a better deal in the labour market and a particular focus on how can women get a better deal out of this uh, informal employment, out of self-employment and out of um, subcontracted work um, for uh, big factories. And in fact, there's a global organization meeting right now in London having its annual meeting on this, so women in informal employment globalizing and organizing, which is bringing... Uh, groups from around the world uh, to share strategies about how they've been working uh, to try and ensure that um, women are not just getting a little bit of money but they're getting a whole lot more money uh, for the work that they're doing. Thank you. So. Thank you very much. Thank you. One of the things, I mean... Uh, the, since the reason many of the issues are the same issues that we're kind of grappling with domestically, as, as you've been talking about internationally, Diane. And um, I mean, just the, actually the very, your very starting point about money and income. And I mean, this isn't simply in a sense a gendered point, but I mean, it's so at the heart of some of the debates at present with the present government as to um, you know, the measurement of poverty and whether. Um, you know the, the role of income in that, um, and I suppose, it, I mean, we've been a, a society for so long where um, we're kind of monetised, as you put it. Um, but that, from what you were saying, has certainly changed. I mean, that, I mean, in a sense, I mean, I suppose it's interesting to ask. I mean, I, I'm someone who believes in a um, a cash society, poverty is essentially about lack of income, lack of material resources. That's not to say it's all it's about, but I think it's the defining characteristic of it. And then there are other things that can be associated with it, like lack of voice. But there are other things that are associated with lack of voice, not just poverty, say. Um, but so income, so in, in my work, I place great emphasis on the material and on income. But I just wonder whether in the context of the kind of societies that you've worked in and uh, studied, um, has it, in a sense, has the, the monetization created additional problems for women or has it in some way empowered women to be able to get some control over this sort of new form of exchange? I mean, I think it's both. Yeah. Um, if you ask me, is the glass half empty or half full? It, my answer will depend who I'm talking to. So if I'm saying, yes, women are helping uh, to assert women's right uh, to go out of the house and to 
um, find employment and get some money of their own, definitely, and the glass is half full. But if I'm then uh, working with women's organisations that are fighting for a better deal in that employment um, in terms of the remuneration and in terms of the rights, then I'll say it's half empty and they need more. So I think it's, it's both. Mm. Definitely having more money is important, but it's not the, the only thing. And I think one of the reasons why in development um, there was a move to look at poverty uh, beyond income uh, is because you couldn't take for granted the kind of public services that until recently we've been able to take for granted in mm. Europe. You couldn't take for granted there was a functioning public health system or an education system or water and sanitation. Mm. You couldn't just switch the light on or turn the tap on. And so there was also uh, an emphasis about... Um, thinking about the provision of these things and also a kind of worry about we might be in a world where this has all become marketized and and was becoming marketized from the early 80s onwards uh, in countries where it hadn't yet hadn't got so well established as it say had in Europe so lots of user fees charging people fees to send their kids to primary school uh, charging um, people, uh, women, fees to go to the maternal health clinic, um, privatization of uh, water and sanitation. So I think within that context, there was a kind of feeling that we should emphasize this kind of collective social provisioning, which you don't have to pay at the point of delivery um, through, through fees, um, but which is paid for through taxation. And so to think of um, the resources you have, as yeah, the, the money that you get as an individual and as a family from employment, but also the public services that you should be getting uh, in, in order to um, uh, develop the kind of cap- capabilities that we might take for granted here. What there hasn't been is what I see coming up here, uh, this notion that if we go beyond income, we're looking at things that are the fault of the poor. So there hasn't been this feeling, oh, well, you know, Mm. poverty is really because these parents are irresponsible and they... uh, they, they smoke and they're drug drug addicts and they gamble. So I think that's a new thing that's um, certainly coming up uh, here. Although there has been in the context of this development of cash transfers um, this, uh, uh, to low-income women, certainly there's been a concern about making sure women spend it in the right way, mm-hmm. which I think has been a long-standing mm-hmm. kind of trope in the discussion of um, uh, social security for low-income mm-hmm. women here too. I'm not sure it's necessarily a new thing that the poor are being blamed for their poverty, yeah. but it's, it's certainly, I think, become much more central to a kind mm. of government um, understanding of the causes of poverty. But I, I really, actually, what you were saying about mm. services made me think the whole issue of time poverty becomes mm. much more obvious, doesn't it? If, you've got, if you can't just flick a switch, uh, if you can't just turn a tap, and we know it's women who have to go mm. and get the water, mm. isn't it? Mm. And, um, sort of firewood and so that's 
So it, whereas the time poverty, I think, is much more, again, hidden here, it's still there, because I think women still have to do quite a lot of work patching things together. There was that lovely um, Laura Balbo many years ago, the lovely um, image of the patchwork quilt. You know, you're patchworking, mm-hmm. you're kind of the work of putting things together, uh, using services, can itself be work. But it just made me wonder, I mean the way services are going in this country and the cuts um, in services and the way you know, local authorities, particularly in poorer areas, are being cut. I mean, I'm not saying we're going to be going right to a, a, um, a sort of global south situation, but it actually is perhaps going to make all this much more pertinent again, that this is going to be a lot more work involved than if you could just take for granted the services being there. No, I agree. I think it puts the issue of time poverty uh, much more on the agenda when you see the cutbacks that there are at local government level in childcare services and uh, care services for fair elderly and for um, people with disabilities. Uh, and I think that's one of the dimensions of poverty that's come more to the fore in the last, perhaps the last decade. Okay, can, can I, um, at this point, whether... You've come together on a point of consensus. Perhaps ask um, to take this conversation um, or to ask you to contribute your ideas and questions to to this conversation. Um, We have roving mics here, so if you would like to ask something, make a comment about this. Could you please put your hand up and somebody will bring you a microphone? And there's somebody here already. People could say who they are. And would people please say who they are as well? Thank you. Hi, thank you. I'm Anja Plomin um, at the Gender Institute and also a member of the Women's Budget Group. Um, I have a question about money. It's one question, but with a sub-question to each of the speakers. And my question to Ruth Lister is, is it about the money? Uh, And I am asking with reference to the parental leave discussions, because at the EU level, there was a directive that would have uh, implemented greater provisions for fathers across European member states. Uh, in the UK, one of the dissenting voices were the business uh, community here, um, stating that they could not afford the provision. On the other hand, there are arguments that until we have men demanding more uh, time to care, Uh, we will not um, get such provisions in place. So is it about the money? And to Diane Elson, Diane, I also have a question to you about money. Uh, Is money there to provide or to to, to address the issues that you talk about, whether in the public or the private uh, spheres? Do you want to do one at a time? Yes, do you want to do one at a time? Okay, well, I I think you're right. I don't think that issue is about the money. Um, I think, uh, well, I've, I've said this to my, my I mean, I'm, in, I'm a Labour peer and uh, Labour in government, I think, went down the wrong road on this. And instead of, I mean, they had talked about kind of um, uh, parental leave with uh, keeping some of it for the, the father. And then it kind of just didn't happen because, as you say, I think the business community 
And there was such a fear of being, you know, going against what business wanted. So instead, they went down piling it all on maternity leave, which I just think, you know, on the face of it, might say, oh, great, you know, we're giving women mothers more rights. But actually, I think it's utterly counterproductive. Um, I mean, obviously, there's got to be a decent amount of maternity leave around the time of maternity. But after that, I think all the the cross-national evidence suggests that it is much better for gender equality if you encourage fathers to use it. And and Iceland, I mean, as you'll know, has gone the furthest on this. I mean, I think it was... Is it three and three and three, i.e. three for the mother, three for the father, and three they can share? And now they're actually going further. I think, it, I can't, is it five? Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Little Iceland, you know, if they can do it, why can't we? Um, and, but you're right. I mean, yes, if men, had, and fa- well, partly if fathers had, um, I mean, I think there are a growing number of fathers who would like it, and and it's not necessarily terribly helpful to kind of paint fathers as the sort of the enemy who've got to be, you know, the whip has got to be cracked and they've got to do more of this, although I'm sure in some cases that may be the case. But I think there are, I mean, things are changing, and I think there is a growing sense that more fathers would like to have more involvement in looking after children, perhaps the nice bits of it, not necessarily always the the dredgy bits of it Um, but it's yes you can hardly say there's been a kind of movement demanding it Uh, and if there had been yes perhaps something more might have happened there'd been more of a countervailing force and I think it also because some feminist groups themselves have been a bit divided about this um, I mean particularly in response to this government's consultation around shared parental leave there were some Groups who said, oh, ha- ha- you know, hands off, you know, can't take anything away from the mothers. And, and it gave the government, I mean, because actually the coalition government, I mean, this is one of the few things where I felt, God, they're actually going to do something better, to begin with, had said they would go down the, the um, uh, daddy month route. And then they pulled back, again, as you say, partly because of business, partly because there actually wasn't a sort of united voice from outside. So, now I absolutely agree that isn't about money as such. Do you want to take this? Uh, yes, well, it's a good question because whenever you, 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 know, you point out women's poverty and let's do something about it, you often get the, there's no money. And my response to this is always money isn't like a natural resource. It's, not, it's something we create. And when we decide we want to create it, we do. Look at quantitative easing. There's been plenty of money uh, for uh, the central bank here and the Federal Reserve Bank in New York to put into the economy and sitting there in uh, the banks and then the banks uh, speculating with it in stock exchanges around the world. So there's money for some things always, but not for others. Uh, And that, I think, is really the the feminist... um, economics uh, question now why is there uh, money uh, for some things but not money for addressing uh, women's rights and uh, women's poverty so never believe it when they say there's no money look at the things that they're spending money on and the ways they're creating money as I say governments and banks 
So, but so public and private sector together create money. It's not something you have to dig up. It's not like mining. <laughs> okay. Um, there's another question here, please, just there, and then over in the middle. Okay, we'll come to you next. Um, yeah, I have two questions um, to each of you. Uh, one follows up the previous uh, question. I'm Diane Perrins, also from the Gender Institute and also in the Women's Budget Group. Um, Taking up the point about money, um, much of the discussion has been on the gendered outcomes, and I wondered if you could say a little more about the macro processes that generate the conditions which lead to these outcomes, how they are gendered, and what might be done to try to get the conversation, if you like, moving to that level, as well as to the level of social policy. Um, And then with respect to um, Ruth, I'm just sort of reflecting on the way you began and thinking about um, the 1970s and then now in the House of Lords. And you look quite pleased in a way that you've managed to get this possibility of the daddy month, or at least if not the daddy month, then the possibility that part of the extended leave might be used. And I just wondered if you could take yourself back to the early days, whether you would have seen that as, an out, as a, a sort of success or um, something that's rather limited. And if, if the latter, then how, how do you, could you say more about the barriers that you've confronted over the years in trying to put gender on the agenda, so to speak? Thank you. Yeah, so Diane asked a, a good question about how, when we look at what... Let's forget about what social policy ministries do. Let's look at what finance ministries do, and let's look about the kind of advice they get on what sort of fiscal and monetary policy they uh, should pursue and the decisions they make about that and how that is implicated uh, with issues to do uh, with women's access to enough money, to financial independence and to live a decent life. And, uh, well, the short answer is they should come and do your feminist economics course, anybody (laughs) who wants to know uh, more about that. But I think uh, the first thing to do is always to kind of um, try and and, and deconstruct the uh, monetary aggregates in which this kind of macroeconomic policy is couched. And certainly there's no women there, but no men there either. Uh, It's all... um, uh, Formulated and theorised and measured in very abstract terms. So you ha- then you have to start thinking, where are the people in this and what are the different people doing? So some things, like when it's the labour market, you can very easily disaggregate by sex. You don't, and, and that's you can do for most countries. Uh, then you can start uh, thinking, okay, if the central bank pursues this kind of policy or that kind of policy, how does that impact on the labour market and what kind of implications might it have for men or for women? There's been research done on that by feminist economists uh, who have shown that if the central bank tries to uh, focus only on in, uh, keeping inflation low and doesn't care about what's happening to employment... Uh, then this is, tends to have a more adverse effect on women's employment than it does on men's employment. So you can start to draw some links. When it's the, uh, the spending side and the tax side of the budget, you can do analysis about who's paying the taxes and who's getting the money. We did some analysis in the Women's Budget Group about the policies here in the UK of not raising fuel tax. Now, the government says not raising the fuel duty um, is a a gender-neutral policy because it affects all motorists 
uh, no matter um, you know whether they're male or female. Somehow they still kind of think it would only not be gender neutral if there's one set of petrol pumps for men, but the price is higher. Another another set of petrol pumps for women, where the price is lower. Uh, But we did analysis to show, well, no, actually it depends on the impact. Who gets the benefits from this is going to depend on who drives the big cars. Um, Well, A, men are more likely to drive cars than women, and among car drivers, men are more likely to drive the bigger cars than women. So actually, you don't really need that much training economics to figure out this is going to have, the benefits are going to go more to men and middle class men with cars than they are uh, to women. Um, so you can start to do some kind of tracing about um, uh, how do these policies, which uh, to begin with look as if they, they don't you can't really see how the impact on different groups of people, but you can probe a little bit more and then you can see that. And always one of the big challenges in doing that is to convince economists that you have to look inside the household as well as between households. And that is still because a woman doesn't starve if she has no money of her own, there tends to be a resistance to thinking it's important to look inside the household. Saying it's not the question of whether a woman starves or not if she doesn't have any money of her own. It's what does she have to give up? What kind of dignity does she have to give up uh, in order uh, to uh, not starve in those circumstances? Well, that's a, that's a very challenging question to me, Diane. Um, yes, I am quite pleased about it, and that's in the context of spending hours in the House of Lords winning absolutely bugger all. You know, so in that context, getting that felt like something. You know, I mean, we won, and even when you do win something, then it tends to get overturned in the Commons, which of course they have the right to do, and and theoretically, I mean. the, the you know, the legitimacy that we don't have in the Lords. Um, and some of it was heartbreaking over the Welfare Reform Bill. Like, I mean, one of the things I was really pushing there was that there should be a choice as to whether you have your benefit paid monthly or fortnightly. Not a kind of revolutionary demand, exactly. And actually, not a, going back to your question, not about money, but paying it monthly is all about you know, because this, this is how people ought to budget, and, and if you're going to go into paid work, you've got to be ready for it with monthly, you know, monthly budgeting. And we lost the vote by, I think, about three votes. You know, and I just wanted to cry. Um, so, so yes, I mean, it's tiny, and it's not even something that's happened. It's only something that would enable something to happen. But it's kind of, you know, you you, you have to take your kind because if you don't, if you don't sort of take some kind of um, well, pride's not quite the right word, but sort of satisfaction from small gains, given that there aren't any big gains to be had at present, then you kind of think, well, what's the point? And before I go back to the 70s, actually, I learned that from my time as director of the Child Poverty Action Group, which was while Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. And again, if we'd not kind of, and, and we sort of measured our successes really by what we prevented rather than what we achieved, because it was like a constant defensive bat, you know, battle. So we were defending a welfare state that we had attacked in the 1970s as inadequate. <coughs> um, so that, in a sense, 
that, you know, the Thatcher years changed everything in a way, and we're still living with the consequences of it. But yes, if I go back to the 70s, I'd have said, oh, pathetic, you know. I mean, I mean, we were... We, we, well, in a sense, some ways, what we were fighting for then was very basic because now it's things that people take for granted that you know women are taxed independently and that you're not treated as a dependent for social security purposes, even if still with means testing you're treated as a unit. Um, but yeah, yes, it, the, the you know the, the fifth demand group of the women's liberation women's liberation movement. You know, we were going out for rather more than just that kind of, you know, what we've just won on, on um, parental leave. Um, in terms of the obstacles, I'm, I think that the obstacles kind of are sort of different at different points, really. And in some ways, I mean, back in the 70s, the, the obstacles were in a way greater because we were that much further from, um, I mean, it was still kind of quite, seemed as, as not exactly revolutionary to be saying women should be treated as individuals, but you know, married women were still seen very much as dependents. Um, and partly thanks to the women's movement, that changed. Um, I'd say, I mean, the obstacles under, you know, in the Thatcher years were, well, kind of partly, they weren't necessarily just about gender, but about... Um, you know, trying to reduce the role of the state and so forth. And then I'd say the, the obstacles under New Labour were a kind of reluctance to identify with feminism with a big F, partly because under Thatcher, feminism and the sort of so-called loony left of local authorities was, you know, New Labour didn't want to have anything to do with it. So although there were feminists in the cabinet it was quite rare for them to identify as such. And there you would have a kind of a problem approach that, yes, we'll do something about this group of, you know, uh, women. It might be women, I don't know, um, I don't know, young mothers or this, you know. So very much a kind of problem-oriented approach but not a kind of structural gender and, and addressing the kind of structural questions that Diane has been talking about, the, the, pro, the gendered processes that are creating inequality. But that also applied, actually, to socioeconomic inequality and the difference, you know, not just between men and women, but between you know, top and bottom as well. And now, um, I mean, the obstacles just feel... Uh, kind of a combination of it all in a way, you know. Um, I mean, the gendered obstacles are perhaps not so great because, you know, we have a, a conservative or conservative-led government who are a bit more savvy on these issues and are not, you know, it's very rare for them to... Um, I mean, it's only people like Ian Duncan Smith who will talk about, yes, it's actually rather good if we're discouraging second earners from going out to work. Um, but... It's the obstacles are again game you know the the attack on the on the role of the state um, and that we are you know we the sort of the whole ideology of neoliberalism which kind of didn't go away under new labor but was tempered is kind of back in force even though 
Cameron and you know talks about himself as being you know a more progressive conservative but actually I don't know how many other people are here who were around in the 1980s but actually it's feeling worse now than then I think they're going further and what is partly making it worse is the destruction of local authorities because that was a bit of a countervailing force in the 80s and you know with welfare rights you know, I mean, that was when welfare rights services really expanded and they were to help, able to help people get more money and they've just been decimated. Um, so. Right. Um, perhaps we could move. There was another question just there and then perhaps we could come to you. Have, have you got the mic already? Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Nikita and uh, I'm in the Gender Institute. I'm, in fact, taking a course in uh, feminist economics. We read a lot of uh, your writings. Um, I have two questions. One, I think, follows um, from what Diane asked and the discussion about the macro uh, economic policies at macroeconomics level. When we talk of the neoliberal ideology and when we talk of um, open open market, free market uh, economy, which which is essentially based on profit maximization and cheap labor, uh, what do you think and on, on another hand, um, the structural adjustment policies. What do you think it, um, wh where does that leave states or nations uh, in order to protect their interests? And so what kind of regulations do you think sta uh, states or nations should um, put into, into place in order to, and how much scope there is when we talk of the uh, international financial market? And the, the second question is that when we talk of inequalities, I think we essentially are trying to bring in the discussion of well-being of people. So um, how do you, I want to ask, what do you think are some good indicators of measuring well-being at a, at a collective level? Thank you. I think it's very interesting to look at what's happening in Latin America in the last decade. Anybody here from any Latin American countries? Yeah, because, you know, we think of the 90s as the lost decade for Latin America under the onslaught of the structural adjustment policies with the kind of um, uh, really increases in, uh, in deprivations and inequality. But in, since 2000, in quite a few... Um, Latin American countries, there has been a reversal of the tendency towards inequality. There has been some reduction in poverty. There has been um, a much more proactive uh, taxation policy, uh, kind of raising more taxes from the better off and spending it in ways that uh, <laughs> lead to more benefits um, for poorer people. So I think, and it's been in countries where the political party that came to power was a somewhat more progressive party that wanted to do something about poverty and inequality. So although they've not created paradise on earth, they've definitely made some gains in the last 10 years, even within uh, the, the, you know, the, the systems of global governance, which are very market-driven. Uh, so there is some room for manoeuvre. But I also think there's a, quite an encouraging tendency, at least um, in terms of international capital movements, to 
to get more agreement that uh, governments actually should control these. They shouldn't open up their borders to inflows and outflows of hot money. Uh, this is very destabilizing. And um, even the IMF has now come around to the idea that um, uh, it, it, this, it's better not to have a completely deregulated international capital market and have some kind of control. So I do see on some things a little bit of a rowing back um, the, in Latin America, they also did more to um, strengthen labor rights. They raised the minimum wage, for instance, in quite a lot of countries, and they um, rode back on the kind of policies that may, and, uh, made it difficult for p- people, workers, to get together collectively and, and bargain. So a little bit of uh, hope there, I think. And also a growing... A growing um, recognition um, of the dangers of the growth of inequality that we have seen uh, with, uh, uh, you know, I could list you half a dozen studies including one that was in the Financial Times today from the International Monetary Fund saying we've gone too far with inequality Uh, there needs to be uh, rolling back from this, there needs to be policies at both national level regional level and international level uh, that put more power back into the hands of uh, national governments uh, to uh, start doing more effective work to address poverty and inequality. So, on the other hand, of course, I mean, the big problem is you can have lots of uh, studies by social scientists uh, putting out the evidence for this, but unless you get a political change as well, unless you get governments in power that actually want to do this, um, then those studies may not have uh, any impact. Just because the IMF now says it's actually quite good to have progressive taxation (laughs) and it won't ruin your growth if you tax the rich a bit more doesn't mean that lots of governments are now going to go and uh, tax the rich. But I do see a little bit of um, kind of breaking up of that monolithic notion uh, that deregulation, liberalisation, minimal state is the best way to go. And, of course, even within that, we've still got the... There's always the fight within the fight. So even if the issues of inequality get more on the agenda, uh, more on the agenda as well, the issue of the inequality between labour and capital, within that, we've still always got to fight uh, for for making sure we look at women's financial independence, for instance, that it's not just about enhancing the earnings of men, it's also about enhancing the earnings of women. It's not just about better social security for men it's also independent social security for women yes um the question about well-being um and i think it's it's good that you kind of asked it about in sort of a collective level because i think quite often i mean the the this growing sort of science of measuring well-being but very much at a kind of individual level and you know were you happy yesterday kind of thing and um, for me, um, I guess collective measures of well-being would partly be around inequality. Um, for me, um, an unequal society... I mean, obviously, I'm not talking about equality that everyone has exactly the same, which is how sometimes you know, the kind of straw person that is put up against egalitarians, but that a grossly unequal society like ours, um, but like many others... Uh, is not, I think, conducive to collective well-being and all the, the kind of spirit-level um, work uh, um, endorses that idea. Um, 
it would also be, I mean, we've talked a bit about time, and for me, a sort of uh, collective well-being would be where people, where time is, is distributed more fairly as well, between men and women, um, but also that no one has to work incredibly long hours in paid work, that we have a much um, uh, kind of, the, the people aren't stressed out um, and have time for other things, be it care work and the, the other work that has to be done, but also you know, to, for other things that people can enjoy life um, uh, that we're not... I mean, there's a sort of fetishization of paid work that's become increasingly dominant, and that actually perhaps is one of the, another obstacle uh, that's different, I think, from the 1970s, and which we've probably contributed to by rightly arguing that women, you know, should be, uh, have their rightful place in the workforce, and then that gets kind of used against us to push uh, everyone into paid work, regardless of what that work is like. So, I mean, I, I mean, in a sense, it's kind of the old Marxist idea of, you know, you do paid work in the morning, you go fishing in the afternoon. Of course, he didn't talk about care work, but, uh, um, you know, so it's that kind of, I think, a more rounded life. Um, and uh, I think the, I think there, there's particularly interesting work done around children's well-being, the children's society, and I think that brings a particular perspective on it, uh, in terms of the kind of childhood that children can enjoy. I think things around environment, I mean, I think collectively, we can't really say, we've, you know, there's collective well-being the way we're treating our environment. Um, so I think there has to be a green perspective, but also just in terms of the environment around us that, um, I mean, there is, I think, research which shows that, you know, if you look out on trees or whatever, you know, people in hospitals where they can see trees are more likely to get better. Um, so our built environment, our parks, all the kind of things that are probably going to uh, increasingly be neglected because of local authority cuts, uh, I think will all reduce our collective well-being, even if it doesn't necessarily come up in measures of individual <coughs> well-being. And these are all things, actually, um, Mary mentioned that I'm involved with a group called Compass, and one of our, the kind of things we're trying to encourage a debate on is, you know, what makes a good society? And what kind of society do we want to live in? And this is the kind of debate they're beginning having, they're having in Scotland at present, without us, you know, because the Scottish independence debate is a debate that is now about what kind of country do we want to be? Um, and where do you hear that kind of debate down here? Not very often. <laughs> Thank you. Did somebody just say if you could pass? Uh, hello. Thank you for for your talk. My name is Diego. I'm from the methodology department. And uh, before coming to the UK, I was working uh, with conditional cash transfer programs in Latin America and Central America. So uh, and there was something mentioned about this program so concerning how it can um, reinforce certain roles and uh, by uh, the way they are uh, applicated. So my question is, uh, if we can assume that these programs do what they are supposed to, to do, which is reduce inequality across groups, would you say in context uh, like the Latin American context where there are very limited state resources that 
this implication is uh, unacceptable. And um, so, so can we say that these programs are condemned just because of the fact that they do not address this issue? Thank you. I've, I've listened to lots of debates between uh, women in Latin America and also in other parts of the world uh, about this issue, you know, both in terms of, well, on the one hand, it's a good thing if mothers are getting the money directly to them because that's what we want, more money in women's hands. On the other hand, does this reinforce the notion that it's mothers but not fathers' responsibility to make sure that the children go to school, go to the clinics, uh, etc.? Uh, and and um, so I've heard, you know, different women uh, argue differently on that as indeed we have argued differently in the UK on child benefit. I mean, the issue of should child benefit in this country, there's not conditions attached to it, like sending your children to school or getting vaccinated, but it is a payment that we debated a lot about, should it go to the mothers or the fathers? In the end, we came out, I think, saying you should go to the main carer. And the main carer in probably you know, 85% of the cases is a woman. Uh, but uh, putting it that way means it's possible for men uh, also, uh, if they become the main carer, to get this money. But whether you can do that also depends a lot on the, you know, the, the particular circumstances. I think another issue that people have raised is um, what about the other kind of transformations that need to go on? I, I have a Mexican student, a PhD student at the moment, who's looking in Oaxaca um, a State in Mexico at the the, um, how this kind of cash transfer program is working out in two indigenous communities. Well, and what she's finding now is a lot of consternation because the children are now teenagers. Uh, they've quit, they've left uh, secondary school, they've gone through, you know, the, uh, and their mothers no longer get the money because the money, is, you got the money while you're for sending your children to school. Now your children are too old to go to school. You don't get the money anymore. And in theory, those children are now equipped with an education that will enable them to get a, uh, better uh, um, earning possibilities and contribute uh, to their families through that. But actually, is this happening? Because maybe there aren't any jobs for them there. Uh, and that's one of the things she's going to investigate. So I wouldn't want to come down one side or the other and say... You know, it's bad to pay it to the mothers or it's good to pay it to the mothers. I think it's a complex issue which I think people have to kind of debate in the specific countries that they, they're in. And, and, and I think the main thing I've drawn out of this is that it's important that this shouldn't become a standalone policy. It needs to be complemented by uh, investment in the schools and uh, in in the um, uh, clinics and the hospitals and in the kinds of economic policy that will ensure jobs are created uh, for the generation that's now uh, leaving school. Do you want to add? No, I haven't uh, okay. anything to add to that at all. Um, perhaps we could just take one last question just here, please. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Josephine. I'm doing a master's in the geography department here, and I'm also uh, taking the feminist economics course. And my, questions, my question draws a bit upon uh, one of my previous colleagues here. Uh, so we're studying um, 
this global movement towards devolution of power and decentralization of power towards more local authorities uh, and re regional and local authorities and the hollowing out of the power of the nation state. Now, not necessarily, like this devolution is not necessarily meant uh, decentralization of actual resources to local level as the cuts have indicated, but my question is, um, what challenges and possibilities uh, does this devolution and decentralization of power towards a more local and regional level um, pose when it comes to, to gender issues? Uh, um, well, I can only really talk about it in the UK context, but I'm sure Diane will be able to talk about it more internationally. And um, I mean, you're right. I mean, there's a very much. It's. I mean, no one, I think, would stand up now in mainstream politics and say we're in favour of centralised power. Um, you know, it's all about devolution. Um, and the way it's happening so far, as you say, it, it may be devolution, but not necessarily the resources. And devolution in a way that, uh, say, on sort of. Uh, things like council tax benefit is not at all helpful because um, it's putting more strain on low-income households and women will be bearing much of that strain. I mean, the, on the labour side, it's very much in terms of sort of letting go, you know, not being so top-down um, and kind of philosophies of empowerment and so forth, which all sounds very good. But my worry um, is that you can only go so... I mean, it, it, it's helpful in the sense that I, I think it is then easier for people to get involved, to have voice, um, to participate in decision-making which affects them. It's easier at local than at national level. Um, you still have to build in a lot of things to make sure that it's not always the same people with the loudest voices and the sharpest elbows and so forth to, that that happens. But it's probably easier still to do it at local than at national level. But my fear is that this has become so fashionable now that, as I say, you can't sort of... It's very difficult to argue against it, that people then forget that we still need a, a strong central state in order to address the kind of inequalities that... Diane's been talking about, and they're not going to be addressed at local level. I mean, there are some things that can be addressed at local level, but in terms of regulating the labour market, redistributing through the tax and benefit system, I think that still has to be done at national level, and so it can't all be devolved down. And the more and devolved down, I mean, it's become a bit of a cliche this idea of postcode lottery. But, it, I mean, there are all sorts of kind of unfairnesses that get thrown up. Um, we've seen it as well with, I don't know how many of you are aware, of something called the Social Fund in this country, which was like the safety net below the safety net um, to if people kind of got into difficulties and needed help with a lump sum for some reason. It might be, say, a woman leaving a d um, domestic violence and setting up and then it would provide furniture and things for a new home or something. Anyway, that was abolished. Money devolved down to local authorities. Two years later, they say, oh, no more money. You know, you're on your own local authorities. Um, and that's the kind of thing that can happen. And then, of course, they blame the local authorities 
you know, if they say, if they're not providing a decent scheme. Oh, well, it's local authorities' responsibility. Nothing to do with us in central government anymore. So that's the danger. And I think you see similar kind of tensions in many countries. I mean, on the one hand, this notion of uh, devolution down to lower tiers of government has got some opportunities uh, for women because there are more presence of women at, uh, at, lo at local government, regional and local government levels in terms of being elected representatives or in terms of being able uh, to go and hear your elected representatives um, talk about what they're doing. You know, Not everybody's going to be able to go to the capital city to do that, but you can go to your village, your city, your regional capital much more easily. And there's, there's opportunities for women to mobilize. And there's some of the perhaps most effective work on... Um, looking at uh, budgets through a gender lens and asking about is it supporting gender equality and women's rights and so forth has been done at local level. But on the other hand, as, as uh, I completely agree with what Ruth has been saying, there's been a lot of devolution of responsibilities but without devolution of resources. Um, a, lot, a lot of responsibilities um, and the taxation power still remains much more centralized. So uh, I think you need to, we need to press, really, if there's going to be devolution of resources, there needs to be devolution of tax powers. And I think that's one of the things you're seeing in Scotland, uh, that people uh, want to see more uh, capacity for Scotland to um, uh, raise its own taxes and spend the money in ways that they want to. So it's, it's, it's important we work, and lots of women are working, I think, at the local government level, but the context in terms of what resources are provided and what possibility local governments have to raise a revenue for themselves, uh, that, you know, that's where the problem comes. Uh, and local, I said earlier in, in, uh, in asking, you know, where's the money? For national government, where's the money? There's always money because national government has a capacity through the banking system to create money. That's not so for local government. So there really is a much more of a hard budget constraint for local government unless they uh, have more uh, capacity to raise money for themselves. So it's an area we should work, but we shouldn't think that this is going to be the magic solution to get things done that you can't get at national level. Thank you. Um, I think we're going to have to stop there because it is now half past seven. Um, just before we do stop and before I thank our speakers very much, can I just um, uh, remind you that there is another um, seminar com um, conversation on Thursday of this week at five o'clock when two historians, Sally Alexander and June Purvis, are going to be speaking about working in the Women's Library and using those resources. Um, that's going to be held in the Graham Wallace Room and starts, as I say, at 5 o'clock. So do come to that um, if you're interested. But then since we stopped on a point at which um, Diane has suggested that we recognise the um, colossal possibilities of the existence of money, can I thank both Diane and Ruth um, for leading us in a conversation which has been rich in the very best sense <laughs> and for making this such an extraordinarily interesting um, and informed conversation. So thank you both very much indeed for coming and thank you all. <laughs>